0: The Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's good to be with you all tonight, and I want to extend a warm welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. If you're visiting uh, our church and you want to know more about who we are, I want to encourage you to stick around after the service and uh, talk to Glenn, myself, or Andrew, and we would love to get to know you. Tonight, we are wrapping up a short series that we called Why Did Jesus Come to Die? Pastor Duke Kwan came two weeks ago and spoke on that, and last week, uh, Pastor Russ Whitfield came and addressed that. And tonight, uh, we'll be talking about this, in particular, the topic of joy. Why did Jesus come to die? The answer is to secure our joy. Now, there are many biblical and Christological ways of answering this question, uh, but joy, I think, is one of those things that often get thrown to the side. Especially in our Presbyterian circles, I think joy has become the first man off the bench. You know what I mean? It's on the roster, but it's like, eh, doesn't get a whole lot of playing time. And as such... We miss out on the rich experience of grace that God extends to us. He doesn't want us to simply believe and believe more or believe better. He wants us to experience joy. Does that sound weird to you? Then you might be a Presbyterian. No, just kidding. (laughs) So let's talk about joy. Okay? Let me pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, we are so grateful that many years ago in this day, you rode into Jerusalem for the final time before your suffering, your death, and your resurrection. And as you rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, you brought a good word. You spoke peace to us. And how much we need that word. You know that in our hearts, we have trouble. And in this world, we have trouble and we're tossed back and forth by all kinds of things. And Lord, even tonight, we believe you're here to speak your word, word of joy, to help us to believe you and the finished work so that we as your people can live into this great reality we see before us in the word. So would you give us faith now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For many years, my family collected Safeway Monopoly game pieces. You guys know what these are? Okay, every year we say, this is the year. We're finally going to get that vacation. We're going to go to Hawaii. We're going to ride on our own jet skis, maybe even our yacht. And every year we come up empty. We're always missing that one piece. You know what I'm talking about? That one piece. So this year, when my wife brought home bags of grocery and a stack of these game pieces, I thought, I know how this ends. I've seen this movie before. I'm not going to set my up for disappointment. So I just said, okay, you guys take care of it, and um, good luck. Well, one day, my family explodes into jubilation of biblical proportion, and I make out the words, we won, we won. I was sitting there in the couch thinking, What? Are you serious? We just won the jackpot? And I can't tell you how quickly I became my grandmother. I started talking about Chinese zodiac signs. <laughs> and how Lydia, my oldest daughter, is not just a, a pig, but she was born in the year the golden pig. Okay? Sign of wealth and fortune, and I always believed it would be Lydia who would make it happen. Well, as it turns out, one of the kids made a mistake. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, talk about it. an emotional roller coaster ride. We went from jubilation. Hawaii, here we come to who can't match numbers? (laughs) Daniel? I'm not actually sure if it was Daniel or not, I just assumed it was Daniel. (laughs) Happiness is when you get the acceptance letter, happiness is when you get the promotion, happiness is when she agrees to a second date, happiness is when your husband brings you flowers. And happiness is when your kids do their chores. (laughs) Happiness is a state of emotion, but dictated by external circumstance. Biblical joy shares many of similar attributes, but it's different from happiness in that it is not dictated by external circumstance. It is, the Bible says, permanent, and it is fixed. In the finished work of Jesus. In other words, regardless of what you find yourself in today, regardless of your life station or situation, Jesus offers permanent joy, one that is even more powerful than the grief that you go through. So let's talk about joy, but before we do, let's first talk about grief. Christian faith believes that humanity's core problem is relational. That it happened when Adam and Eve questioned God's character and usurped his authority. And grief is a bitter fruit of estrangement from God. And grief casts a very long shadow and as a way of strangling, a strangling life from us. Grief is the disappointment of an unrealized dream. Grief is the pain of broken relationships Grief is losing a loved one to cancer or to mental illness. All of these things bear death's signature. And we know how low grief can take us. And ever since the beginning of time, humanity's remedy for grief has been to substitute pleasure with joy. To numb the pain with another drink or to distract ourselves with another show on Netflix. Or to feel alive on a night out with friends. Something, anything, to turn off the nagging longing for joy. But you and I know that pursuit of pleasure is exhausting. Jesus, in the gospel, in the word, offers a different remedy, a better solution. If you are a Christian, grief is not your permanent address. The good news of Christian faith says that God has not left us to ourselves. In fact, He entered in the moment we sinned. And as He finished up the words of judgment, He pronounced the gospel to say, No, but I will do something about this. That I would put enmity between you and the woman, and I will lead this charge of bringing the two together. In other words, bringing them home. And that's what God has done in Christ. He came into the world to mend the broken relationship, to show us a better way, a better remedy, and take us back home. And as he often does in the Gospel of John, Apostle John tucks away the Gospel in the two bookend verses of a text. Follow along. In verse 16, he says, You will see me no more, and we hear the echoes of judgment. When Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden because of their sin. But almost immediately, Jesus follows up with, But you will see me. You will see me again. You see, estrangement is not the end of the story. Jesus promises that you will see him again. And he speaks of reconciliation that will take place between us and God. But how? Jesus, how will you do this? How will you take us back home to the Father? How will you mend this broken relationship that we have tried so hard to fix, to solve? And he says in verse 33, Take heart, I have overcome the world. The barrier that divides us between God has been overcome. And this is astonishing because Jesus spoke these words before his suffering and death. It's one thing if Jesus rose again and then said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. But Jesus, in the light of the suffering that is to come, He says, I got this. And this gives us great confidence to trust in the words that He has already said. Yes, we will not see Him. But for a little bit, we will see Him again. Because He will Do something about it. So let's take a closer look. Verse 16, Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. The disciples were stuck. True to Presbyterian form, they formed a study committee to look into the Greek verb here. They began to discuss among themselves, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying jesus begins to explain starting in verse 19 three things first separation jesus says you will see me no more and by this he refers to his death the second person of the trinity will expose himself fully to god's judgment to drink the cup of unmitigated wrath of god and on the cross He will bear the weight of sin and face the horror of death and experience firsthand the grief of estrangement from God. You see, Christian faith is unique in that our God does not simply know the pain and the suffering you and I go through, but He enters into that space. He knows exactly what it's like to know to be separated from God the Father who is light and life. And to know what it's like to live in darkness and in death. But the story does not end there. Because that separation, he goes on to say, will be temporary. He says, and then after a little while. You see, death does not get the final say. Sin will not reign forever. And in fact, on the cross, Jesus defanged death. And he rendered sin ineffectual. That's why Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. He checked into Holiday Inn. He didn't buy a house because he knew that on the third day he would rise again, that he would have no need for a tomb. But Jesus' enemies thought his death was permanent. and They thought they won. Now, if you learn anything from Auburn, Virginia, NCAA Final Four game, it's this. Don't celebrate prematurely. Sorry, Auburn fans. Let me explain for those of you who didn't watch the game. Auburn was up by two with less than two seconds to go. And uh, Kyle Guy, one of the UVA players, missed the three-pointer. And at that point, the Auburn fans went crazy because they thought the game was over, that they were going to the finals. The campus was lit, and the bandwagon was fuller than ever. But the game was not over. You see, Auburn fans didn't hear the whistle. They were too busy celebrating their victory. And as you know, Kyle Guy went to the free throw line and sunk all three free throws. And the rest, as they say, is history. Satan, sin, and death unleashed their fury. And when they laid Jesus in the tomb, they thought, it's over. And they celebrated their victory. But God blew the whistle. There was a foul on the play, you see. Because death is the penalty of sin. But Jesus was without sin. And therefore, death had no claim over Jesus. It had to give him up. And the rest Is history. And that's why Jesus says, Yeah, I will be separated from you, but not for long. I will come to you. We will see Him again. He will come and He will bring peace to our hearts. He will bring the Father's love and extend grace to us, and He will take us back home. If grief is the bitter fruit of estrangement from God, then joy that he offers is a fruit of reconciliation with God. Just as the pain of childbirth is eclipsed by joy, at least least I've been told that, Jesus says our grief and all the things that strangle life out of us will be overshadowed by joy. How? How? Well, let's talk about joy. Let's talk about joy. Now, it's hard to talk about joy without first talking about Marie Kondo. You guys know who she is? I got issues with her, right? Marie Kondo is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. The first time I saw that title, I thought she said, Tithing Up, and I said, Amen. She is, she's a theologian. She, she gets this. But she wasn't talking about tithing. She was talking about tidying up. And my first reaction was, she certainly didn't know my kids. She goes on to say, her mission is to spark joy in the world through tidying. Again, does she have any idea what it's like to live with kids? Now, she might be a parent. I don't know. But... Um, the more I read and studied about this, I, I was convinced she's not a parent. <laughs> and she goes on to say if anything doesn't bring joy, then she recommends you thank the item for its service and toss or donate it. I was thinking, is there a return policy on children? Like, <laughs> they used to bring joy at some point. I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> Biblical joy has little to do with how clean or how tidy your house is. Amen? Amen. Especially all the parents, amen? (laughs) In order for us to understand biblical joy, we have to start with the story of Exodus. Now, Pastor Duquan, two weeks ago, talked about the nature of joy, so I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that. But I do want to talk about how we actually latch on to this thing called biblical joy. So that we on this side of heaven can experience joy. Joy awaits us. Ultimate joy awaits us. But how do we begin to experience that here and now? So that's what we're going to talk about. But first, let's go to the story of Exodus. As you know, Israel lived under Pharaoh's oppression for 400 years. And they cried out to God. And the book of Exodus tells us that God heard their cry remembered his covenant and performed the ten plagues, the ten signs, and delivered Israel from Egypt. And Exodus changed everything. The slaves who were laying bricks to build whatever they were building received new identity. They enjoyed new freedom. They were able to embrace their, new, their culture without having to look back to see... If their way of life would be approved. They experienced new life, new freedom. And it was a game changer. That one act of God changed everything for the people of God in the Old Testament. And the story of Exodus is just a paradigm for the Christological joy that we read about in the New Testament. A mere shadow of the real thing that Jesus offers us. Because in the New Testament, this God would act again. And in Christ, God would take on human flesh. He will come to be one of us. To live the life that you and I could not live out. And suffered and die on the cross. And on the third day, He rose again from the dead. And this event, the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, changed everything everything for the people of God. Therefore, we as God's people have a new identity as sons and daughters of God. We are not defined by our failures or our struggles, but we are defined by the finished work of Christ. We are loved, we're celebrated, we're accepted as His beloved. And our Father who is kind beyond measure knows how to give good gives to us. If we ask for bread, He would not give us stone. If we ask for fish, He will certainly not give us a scorpion. But even before we ask for the things that we should ask, God is already at work to bring those things into fruition. I can't tell you how many times I would look back at the past 5, 10, 20, 30 years of my walk with Jesus And see the hand of God all over my own story to know that despite my own mistakes and ignorance God was directing the course of my life to bring me where I am into a deeper relationship with Jesus not so that I have more in my bank account or more in my hands but that I know him more I know him better and I know him to be true and that is more than I could have asked for. And if you are a believer, a follower of Christ, this is true of you as well. And in order for you to experience this joy, this deep, abiding, permanent joy, glimpse of things to come, you need to preach this to yourself until you believe that you are indeed a child of God. That you are not defined by your mistakes. That you are not defined by your sin. But you are defined by the finished work of Jesus. We not only have new identity in Jesus, but we enjoy new freedom. New freedom from the power of sin. One day, we will be free from the presence of sin. But here, as we struggle... The grace given to us allows us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. And it helps us to grow into our identity as Christ followers. And this is an amazing grace that He extends to us. That we individually can become the person that He calls us to be. That we can struggle against sin in our hearts. So that we reflect the moral beauty of Christ in us. So that we, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our actions, we become Christ in this city. What a blessing this is, and what a powerful form of evangelism that would be when we, as a collective community, can grow into this identity. So that we, as God's people, not only embrace who we are, but begin to grow into our identity. To love and care for the city just as Christ loves and cares for us. Not only that, we have been given a new promise. And this promise says, the best is yet to come. You believe this? Do you believe this? That the best is yet to come. That one day Jesus will return and he will make all things things new. All the things that our hearts ache for, they will, in the beauty and the glory of Christ, find their solution. And we will live out who we were always meant to be. No more struggle, no more sin. We will experience intimacy, love, friendship, community, the way God had always intended. The best is yet to come. And if we could latch our hearts onto this gospel truth, then we can experience joy here on this side of heaven. But here's the thing. This joy does not happen automatically. Joy is a virtue, just like love. We pray for love. We practice love. We don't sit back and just hope love will grow and perfect itself one day. No, we work hard to be patient, to be kind, to not keep a record of wrong. Likewise, we need to cultivate joy through the hard work of preaching the gospel to ourselves and wrestling our unbelieving hearts in prayer. So often we say in our circle, The answer is believing more, believing better, believing harder. But I think there is value to this hard work. And this is the hard work that Jesus calls us to. And it's not without fruit. As we begin to get into the word and engage our hearts in prayer, and as we enlist the community to help us do that, our joy will grow And we will come to believe more and more and more of these gospel truths and bear the fruit of joy in our hearts. But I get it. We live in the tension of already and not yet, meaning, yes, I see glimpses of that, but it's so hard to see it. I see how this truth is real and applies to me, but sometimes I have a hard time believing that this is real. For now, joy and grief coexist. They're horrible roommates, really. But grief is temporary too joy and grief coexist but not as equals because joy overwhelms our grief you know how joy teaches us to say we have something better the world says you can find happiness and pleasure in your bank account in your status in the circle of friends that you have But the Bible says, no, you can find true joy in the finished work of Jesus. Because all of these things will come and go. And our hearts are fickle, are they not? The very things that once brought us happiness don't anymore. That's the brokenness of the world we live in. There is no guarantee that these things will continue to give us what we're looking for. And we know this to be true. Jesus certainly does. And that's why He offers us a better way, a better solution, and that is true biblical joy, that is fixed on Him and His gospel. Jesus says, "You got something better," and that's Him. That's Him. You know, when I go out to eat uh, with, you know, friends here in downtown or friends from the neighborhood. You know, some people, uh, they really like salad, okay? I I get that. There's health value to it, so I don't want to, you know, be so harsh on on my uh, vegetarian or vegetarian-leaning friends, but, uh, you know, salads come out first, you know what I mean? Like, they come out first, and so they feel obligated to offer their salad to me, and I look at their kale, the beets, the beans, and I'm like, no thanks, man, no thanks, I am, in fact, not tempted by your salad at all. Like, trust me, there's nothing about your salad that makes me want to partake of it. Okay? Why? Because I got something better. It's called a medium rare cheeseburger. It's coming. I ordered it. It's being made in the back. And it's going to come. It's only a matter of time. And the promise of my burger that's going to show up helps me to live in that moment with deep joy (laughs) to say, no thanks. You can keep your salad. Silly illustration. But I think what Jesus is offering us is exactly this. Now, sorry if you're a vegetarian. You're like, what's wrong with salad? Okay, just follow me. Okay, just follow along. Jesus says to us, you have something so much better. Our hearts are so easily deceived. And we gravitate toward all kinds of things in pursuit of pleasure. But Jesus knows that only He can quiet our hearts. And it's as we learn to rest in the promise of His presence and the promise of things to come, that we can say to the world, I got something far better. I got something far better. C.S. Lewis, the fourth person of the Trinity, (laughs) as Elder David Raymer says. Sorry, man. (laughs) C.S. Lewis is right when he said, all joy reminds. It is never a possession, always is it a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Biblical joy is exactly that. We anticipate what's to come and we experience joy in our hearts. I don't want to make light of the situation you're going through. But let me say this. Despite unrealized dreams and broken relationships, you can experience deep and abiding joy because in Christ we have something better. And even in the face of death, as you watch the loved one slip away, we can know deep, profound joy because in Christ we are promised something better. And we hold on not because our circumstance will change, but our hearts can. And in the midst of all the things that we go through, all the messiness of life, and even in the most difficult and challenging moments, as we latch our hearts to him, we can experience the powerful, life-giving joy that he offers in himself. How? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are grateful that you have done what we could not do for ourselves. You entered into our world, into our space, into our brokenness. And you have defeated it. You have overcome. And now you offer yourself to us. So that even now on this side of heaven, we can see glimpses of what's to come. And we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to believe. But faith also to preach the gospel to our hearts. And to wrestle with our unbelieving hearts. So that we might, in those moments, find you to be faithful, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.